Hi, I'm Tom Luna. I'm a former school board member. I was privileged to serve as senior advisor to U.S. Secretary of Education, Rod Page. I also had the honor of serving for eight years as Idaho State Superintendent of Public Instruction. During that time, I also served as president of the Council of Chief State School Officers. One thing I have learned in all these experiences is that educating children is not rocket science, it's more complicated. On my podcast, Swimming Upstream, we will visit with courageous leaders who challenge the prevailing tide and inspire all of us to swim against the current. Let's jump in. Welcome back to another episode of Swimming Upstream, where we visit with um, education leaders from around the country, uh, talking about uh, their service to their states and to the uh, children of their states. Uh, many of them are national leaders in, in, because of the work and examples they've set in their states, but all of them had to learn to manage and uh, navigate the resistance that comes with uh, the ch kind of change that um, many of us are trying to accomplish in our schools today. And we're going to talk to one of those uh, that has a very unique background, and, um, and I think you'll find it very interesting. And we want to welcome to Swimming Upstream, State Superintendent of Public Instruction from the great state of Arizona, Superintendent Tom Horn. And Tom, welcome to Swimming Upstream. It's good to be with you. Thank you, Tom. You bet. Let's, Tom, um, I mentioned you know, just a moment ago that you do have a unique background that I think goes all the way back to a school board member. Um, and that in and of itself is unique with any number of state superintendents around the country, but yours gets more unique as the story goes. So just talk to us about your pathway and what leads you here to this uh, term as uh, superintendent of public instruction in Arizona. Well, I, I ran for my school board, which is the third largest school district in the state, um, when I had four preschool kids wanting to be sure the schools would be good for them. Uh, and I stayed long enough to give a diploma to my youngest. So that was 24 years on the school board, 10 years as its president. Um, I was elected to the legislature, uh, served four years there, chairman of the Academic Accountability Committee. Um, then I served as state superintendent of schools for, for eight years. And after that, I was the Arizona attorney general. And then I took some time off to go back to my law practice to get my finances in order because uh, uh, elective office doesn't pay much in Arizona. And then I um, uh, and, and then this past year, I ran for a super, state superintendent of schools again. And so this is my third term. Even though we have a two-term term limit, it's two consecutive terms. So I was able to run for my third term. I see. Okay. Um, so uh, you and I actually served. When I was the state superintendent in Idaho, you were the state superintendent of public instruction in Arizona and, uh, and then uh, elected attorney general. Um, and... Um, and like you said, took a brief break, and now you're state superintendent again. And uh, I, 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 you know, I love the fact that you recognize, or you're letting letting people know that at some point you have to take a pause and financially reload. Because, <laughs> like oh, you right. said, I think uh, when I used to be frustrated when people would assume because you worked for the state or for the government that you know you you hardly ever worked and you were just getting uh, making a boatload of money when reality especially if you're running for the office that you're serving in uh the amount of money and time you spend um uh, in, in office and to get in office it can be significant well arizona pays the least of the 50 states so uh, it, it was good that i had a chance to go back to my law practice for a while 
Yeah. Well, l- l- let's talk about some of the things that are happening in Arizona today. But but I want to start by going back a, a bit um, uh, and, and talk about the fact that um, for at least a couple decades, Arizona has been known for uh, promoting more school choice for families. I think back at the time uh, when Lisa Keegan was the state superintendent there, and uh, she was not only a champion of charter schools in Arizona, but became, but became one of the champions of uh, charter schools across the country. And Arizona was one of the first states to really, you know, set an example for other parts of the country on on school choice when it came to charter schools. And and today, Arizona continues to do more and more in expanding school choice. Uh, oftentimes, we hear about some of the programs in Florida that I think are, are wonderful, and, and uh, a, a lot of folks have looked at that. But if I'm correct, um, Arizona now has the largest ESA program in the country, and you can correct me if I'm if I'm off by a state or two. But let's talk about where Arizona is today in school choice, and then maybe drill down a bit on the ESA program that is getting a lot of attention only in Arizona, but across the country. Okay, I'll give you a little bit of history. When Lisa Graham Keegan was uh, superintendent of schools, I was in the legislature. And the state Senate, even though it had a Republican majority, passed a bill to limit the growth of charter schools. It became part of the education omnibus bill, a bill that has a lot of different education provisions. The House passed a, uh, an omnibus education omnibus bill that did not have that provision. I was the chair of the conference committee to resolve those two bills. And the first thing I did was to kill the provision that would limit the growth of charter schools. I thought the market should prevail. We should have as many as students and their parents want to have, uh, you know, let the market determine how many we would have. Um, and as a result of that, when I left office, um, we were the first in the country in the percentage of our students in charter schools. Uh, and Florida was second. So I like to tell that story because a lot of people in Arizona, you know, are tired of Florida claiming to be first. Uh, in charter schools, they were really second. And then in the um, uh, in the universal vouchers, which we call empowerment scholarship accounts, but they're really universal vouchers. We were also first in the nation. We we're before Florida and we we're before anybody else. Um, so we're, um, we continue to be leaders in school choice. Our, our, uh, uh, plan that we adopted before I took office, uh, after I was elected says that, uh, that we are, we are the department of education is a service agency dedicated to raising academic results and empower parents. So empower parents is a, is a big part of our, of our goal. So when you look at the numbers then, um, and I, I think last I heard there was between 60 and 70,000, uh, students or families, you can, you can help me be more specific that are currently, um, have applied or are participating. Um, and uh, is, is there a cap to those number of students or is there, um, um, talk to us about how this grows. Well, uh, we're, we're at about 60,000 students in the public schools, both district and charter. We've got a million one hundred thousand. So that would give you some idea of the proportion. Um, and uh, there currently is no cap. Uh, the governor, who's a Democrat and I'm a Republican, and she's an, she's an opposed to parental choice, has been saying that the cost of this program will will exceed the projections and, and the, the state will have a $300,000 deficit as a result. I've been saying that that's not correct. Um, 
it did start out uh, where instead of students moving from public schools, uh, the student, the parents of students that were in already in private schools were on top of it, and they were the first to apply. And so there was no offset. So that was a pure expense. We we give about seven thousand two hundred dollars per pupil, um, but um, but as time has gone on, we're getting more and more people that are coming from public schools, and the and the the total that the state spends on a public school student is about thirteen thousand um, dollars, of which of about seven thousand comes from the state itself. But the local taxpayers are paying taxes also. So. There's, to taxpayers in general, there's a savings every time a student moves from a public school to a to a um, ESA. Uh, there's a savings of about six thousand dollars, and uh, so I don't think it'll it'll turn out that it'll have the economic impact that the governor is projecting. You know, Tom, it makes me think that you made a comment earlier that uh, charter schools. Uh, people used to ask me, you know, when are we going to have enough charter schools? And I would say when we no longer have waiting lists, right? Because <laughs> that it, when, when, when the demand is met, um, it seems to me that um, if, if, they, if they bump up to the number that's been budgeted and, and, uh, and there's some concerns about it exceeding it, obviously that's a fiscal issue that has to be addressed, but it's also a demonstration of the demand that's out there. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 you know, my point is, as a superintendent of schools, I'm, uh, actually the actual title superintendent of public education, my first, my first duty is to increase academic outcomes in the public schools, uh, and we have and we have a number of excellent public schools. But even the, even a good public school doesn't necessarily meet the needs of all the kids. So uh, if a parent has a child that, whose needs are not being met in public school, they should have a choice, which rich people have always had to send the student to some place that they think will do better. Uh, and now, you know, I believe that people at all economic levels should have that choice. And, and Tom, I, I really appreciate you emphasizing the fact that school choice isn't about bad or failing schools. To, and to your point, there, um, uh, you have many schools and, and with, with, with great teachers doing a great job. Um, but if a child is going to that school and for whatever reason their needs are not being met and they can be met better somewhere else, then you know the the choice is is there for the parents to make. We have families that have say three kids and two of them are in public schools and one of them, for some reason, it doesn't match that student's needs and so he's in private school and he's getting an ESA. Yeah, perfect. So talk about um, one of the things that is always debated, especially when I was in office, is about like the Blaine Amendment, which you know puts restrictions or at least was assumed put restrictions on how states could spend uh, public dollars on private schools. Then we had the Supreme Court decision in Montana that definitely opened the window uh, of opportunity to, um, that maybe there was more flexibility for states to offer a choice, including non-public education. Um, and uh, but, but talk about some of those things, how you navigate those um, when when people either try to make the philosophical argument or even the legal argument about um, whether there's constitutional restrictions to using um, ta state tax dollars to fund uh, a private school. I don't think that's a, that, legally that's not a barrier anymore. The states have found ways around that. Uh, they view the, the Blaine Amendment as applying to the state, giving money directly to the private schools here. The parents are directing the money and the courts have upheld that. So 
that's that's no longer a problem. One of the things I say, because I'm really a public school person, I went to public schools, my four children went to public schools, they all did very well, um, but uh, I believe that choice will cause the public schools to do better academically because competition is good for everyone. That's why the United States was prosperous and the Soviet Union was poor, because we had competition where people work hard and produce a lot. And they had a government monopoly. And as they used to say in Poland, uh, we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. Um, and with that, <laughs> with that philosophy, uh, you don't produce much and so the country's poor. And the same applies to education. Uh, if, a, if, a, if a public school is afraid of losing students to a private school, they'll, they'll be motivated to do a better job of doing well academically so the parents won't want the student to move. Yeah. So, um, Tom, uh, appreciate all these comments. I want to shift gears just a bit and, and talk uh, about, um, you know, you mentioned, and, and it, you've, I think it's on your website, about your goal is to increase student achievement and have it demonstrated on the assessments that students take. Um, so talk about your approach to that and the um, kind of the pathway towards that. Well, I, I t sometimes I tell the story of the Midwest professor who did a federally funded study on time on task. And he concluded that uh, the more time students spend learning something, the more they learn. And his mother said to him, you needed a federally funded study to tell you that. Yeah. It's pretty obvious. <laughs> um, and so I'm trying to get the focus back on academics where the teachers are teaching academics bell to bell. I've teachers have complained to me. They love their subject and they want to teach bell to bell, but under the previous administration, which was a Democrat administration, there was a lot of focus on social emotional learning. And so the administrators forced them to play what they describe as dumb games when they really wanted to be teaching their subject. So our philosophy is every instructional minute is precious. We want them teaching the academics bell to bell. And that means eliminating a lot of the distractions that came into play under the prior administration. So that means getting rid of critical race theory, excessive social emotional learning, except for character education, uh, uh, getting rid of inappropriate sexual classes. Uh, and, and then the fourth element is to get administrators to support teachers on discipline, which I think is an important precondition to students' learning. Yeah, and I want to talk about the discipline. Um, um, also, just want to emphasize the, the fact, um, you know, we, we didn't do a federal study, but we did a study of our own to look at the, you know, the amount of minutes in a classroom and how many of them were, were using instruction time uh, focused on the subject that the student, if they were in a math class, and how many minutes were they spending uh, learning math? And even things like the amount of time to take attendance, I mean, just chops into those. Uh, and, and people would be surprised that out of a, a seven, seven half hour day, um, when you remove all the time, whether it's, um, you know, moving from class to class um, or these other things we described, it was maybe half that amount of time that was the teachers were actually spending um, focusing on the subject um, that, that, that the course was. Yeah, that's, it's a big, we, a big change for us because of the focuses of, of my predecessor. Um, but also, um, I think a lot of the distractions are bad in themselves. Critical race theory, I think, is wrong because I believe we're all individuals. We're brothers and sisters under the skin. We should treat each other as individuals. We should te teach our students to treat each other as individuals and not uh, not treat 
race as a primary factor, which is what critical race theory does. Uh, and and social emotional learning also you find sometimes is a Trojan horse for critical race theory, um, and and sometimes it's just nonsense. I just read a book by somebody who visited a lot of schools, and he found that in elementary schools, the students were spending most of their time coloring. And he said, "We've got to stop doing that. They need they need to be learning, reading and and uh, math, and then uh, hopefully content rich reading with uh, history and science." Um, in the arts, uh, and and not being coloring in coloring books. That's not a good use of teaching time. You mentioned um, um, that part of it is for students to be able to demonstrate what they've learned on assessments. What, what are your thoughts on assessments? The, you know, obviously we have some that are, the, the federal government requires a standard that has some pretty tight um, sideboards on it, which you know, has been frustrating since this whole thing started back in the early 2000s. I think everybody recognized the need to measure. That's my background is measurement science. I'm, you know, and, and the data is critical to get. Um, but but that pendulum can swing too far. So talk to us about what kind of assessments you think are the ones that are going to demonstrate um, the learning that we know students need to, and the skills we know that students need. Yeah, well, you know, I'm in my ninth year as superintendent, and then I had and I also had 24 years as a school board member and president and uh, in the legislature. And I, so I was often asked, uh, if you emphasize test too much, the teachers will teach you the test. And this has been my response. On the, um, it, on the reading test, we ask students to read a passage and show, and answer questions showing that they've understood it. The only way to teach you that test is have the students do a lot of reading, which is a good thing. On the math test, we ask them to solve problems. The only way to teach to that test is to give them the, 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 the principles of mathematics and then have them do practice solving problems. There's nothing wrong with doing that either. So it shouldn't be the only thing that's taught, obviously, and I'm a big proponent of when they are practicing their reading, it should be content rich with history and science. Um, but, um, but it's a good thing to teach to those tests. It's a good, it's a good incentive uh, and it's a good measurement uh, and then on the, we require the ACT test, a college entrance test in high school. Um, and, and the difference between that and the other tests that we have are, are our other tests are um, oriented toward the standards. So, if, so we, have the, we don't test anything that we haven't told the teachers to teach in our standards. Um, and so the teachers know what to teach to, to, to reach that goal. But the ACT, you can't do that because the, the breadth of what they draw on is too wide. You can't teach the standards there. Um, but uh, a lot of it is, is reading comprehension. So again, if students, students need to do a lot of reading, uh, they'll do well on the ACT. And then, you know, other than the math section, even the science section is basically a reading comprehension test. So what's the, what's the focus in Arizona on early literacy? Because as you mentioned, you know, reading opens the doors to... Uh, to history and, and, and to science and, and really in many cases even to math, right? Um, so talk to us about early literacy efforts, um, whether the eight years you were in office or as you, as you move forward. We have a law that says that if students can't read by third grade, they should be held back. There are some exceptions where they could go to fourth grade if they're making progress. And we're, uh, my goal this year is to tighten up on those exceptions because I'm afraid uh, they've been abused. Districts had too much, uh, too much uh, discretion, 
in in moving kids on. If they can't read by third grade, they really shouldn't be moved on. But there is there's some margin for error for first grade, um, and they should have required to have uh, remedial uh, uh, instruction in the summers and so on. Um, Mississippi just de demonstrated that it makes a big difference if you require the students to to, to read. Uh, their their laws are stricter than ours, and I would I would choose theirs if I had the opportunity. Uh, they held back nine percent when they passed their law. They held back nine percent of the students, which is a a fairly big proportion, and that got everybody's attention. So everybody was really focused on making sure the kids could read by third grade. Uh, and I'd like to have a stricter system that they have, but we we do have that rule here as well. Well, and I think what happened in Mississippi also with when Carrie Wright was the state superintendent there was when they uh, when they put that law in place and and the assessment demonstrated, like you said, the nine ten percent. There was a a real shift in how current resources were being spent, any new resources being spent, the kind of programs that were being used, what wasn't being, you know, what which ones were successful and which ones weren't. And, and you know, Mississippi, as you said, is known as a state that uh, has made, um, you know, tremendous uh, gains in early literacy, especially um, when you compare uh, third graders reading at grade level before they move on to fourth grade. So, um, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Mississippi is a great example of, of how to do that. And Carrie Wright used to say, if you have a real consequence, it focuses people's attention. And I, I feel like in Arizona, the districts had too much uh, discretion to move them on to fourth grade. And I'm trying to do what I can to tighten up on that. Yeah, Carrie used to say uh, something to the fact that the only people that were really upset with Mississippi's results were the surrounding states in Mississippi because they could always use Mississippi as an example of somebody that was doing uh, poorer than they were. And she, she, took that ex she took that excuse away from them. So uh, she did some great work there. Uh, Tom, you mentioned, you mentioned uh, some things um, when it came to removing, you know, distractions to teaching in the classroom. And one of those was, um, was discipline. You and I talked a little bit about this before we jumped on on the recording here, and um, so so talk about that because I couldn't agree more. And um, um, it's not new. I was hearing it when I was in office, right? Where teachers were very frustrated; they felt their hands were tied. Um, I don't think any of them had a desire to be to uh, exercise too much discipline, but they needed the ability to manage their classrooms. And so, talk to us about um, that and your thoughts. We did not reverse a teacher on a matter of discipline one time, not once in 24 years. We became known as the toughest district around. Our learning went up and our test scores went up. Uh, and I'm tr I try to bring that philosophy to the state. Uh, you can't teach in an environment if there's no consequence for misbehaving. Uh, you know, students, students want boundaries. Psychologically, they want boundaries. But if they see one student get away with misbehaving, it's going to spread. And pretty soon, it's you don't have a, uh, an atmosphere where the teachers can teach. And it's a major factor in teachers leaving the profession. If I had to teach in a school where I wasn't backed up on discipline, I'd leave too. I wouldn't want to teach under that circumstance. So um, so I'm, that's one of my initiatives is to push hard on, on discipline in the classroom. Yeah, when I was a school board member like yourself, um, it became very obvious that uh, if, if a teacher exercise the necessary um, uh, efforts in the classroom to deal with discipline, that if the principal didn't back that teacher up, the teacher's not going to, they're just not going to do that. They, they know you don't have their back. If the principal comes to the school board. It's a good way to produce mediocre test scores. If, 
if you know if there's no if the if the administrators don't back up the uh, the teachers uh, uh, in imposing. And then ultimately, if the school board doesn't back up the administration, right, in, in their efforts, so I mean, it, they, they all have to know. And the students know, too. The first time a teacher doesn't get the support from the, 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 the principal or the administration, then you like, like you said, it's just going to spread like wildfire and, and, uh, and you end up with this disruption. You're also focusing on other efforts when it comes to school safety. I, I've been a promoter of what we call school resource officers, SROs, uh, policemen in the schools. Um, I don't, my biggest nightmare is that uh, somebody will invade a school and there'll be no one there to protect the kids and they'll kill 20 kids as happened in uh, other states. It could happen here. It could happen in your state. Um, and so I'm pushing hard to get police in every school uh, to to guard against that. So if if, uh, if some maniac invades a school, there'll be someone there to protect the students and the, and the staff. What's the pathway towards that? It's it, through the legislature and then through... Uh... Uh, uh, the legislature provided funding, um, and last year um, we had almost $100 million to distribute for schools could choose between school resource officers and, and social workers, um, and uh, I think both are needed. You need social workers because if a student is upset about what's happening at home, they need someone to talk to, otherwise they can't learn, and you need police to protect them against uh, against invasions. Police also are beneficial because they teach courses and they get to know the students and, the, and then they, the students learn to trust them and not view them as the enemy. So their attitude toward police is much better for the rest of their lives. Um, and so, so, uh, so almost $100 million went for both police officers and uh, social workers, depending on the choice of the school. Wonderful. Well, um, uh, uh, Tom Horn, uh, Superintendent of Public Instruction in Arizona, I appreciate your time here and, and the work that you're doing. Uh, congratulations on your third term and, uh, and your pathway to get there and, uh, uh, and, and, and the work that you're doing. Um, your, your website's pretty robust. I, I spent some time there. If people want to learn more about any of the number of things you and I discussed, uh, there's opportunities to go there to their to your website and see the different programs that uh, that are in place and and kind of see the progress. And I'm sure any of your fellow state chiefs that want to learn more specifically uh, about the work you're doing and um, maybe pick your brain, uh, welcome them to reach out to you. And I, the other 49 state superintendents know how to know how to get a hold of you, right? We have that network. So oh sure, yeah. And uh, our website is azed.gov. If they go on the website and they find something crazy, be aware that's taking us some time to eliminate some of the crazy stuff that was put in under our predecessor. Yeah, those are a work in process, aren't they? So, but Tom, one thing we always do, and I think uh, listeners of uh, Swimming Upstream are uh, m maybe uh, hang on to the very end because they enjoy this part of the uh, of the podcast. But share with us one piece of information or trivia about Arizona that would be a surprise to most people. We have more boats per capita than any other state in the nation. People think of states on the ocean, but we have we have lakes, a lot of artificial lakes from, you know, that Theodore Roosevelt started. And um, uh, and as a result, we have more boats per capita than any other state in the entire country. That That's a piece of information I don't think most people would know. Tom Horn, thank you for being a guest. 
on Swimming Upstream, and we appreciate your time, and we appreciate the work that you're doing in Arizona for the kids of Arizona. Thank you, Tom. It was a pleasure to be with you. All right. Have a great day. You too. Thank you for listening. And remember, our children may only be 22% of our population, but they represent 100% of our future. If you found this conversation valuable, subscribe to our YouTube channel and find us on your favorite podcast platform. Swimming Upstream is part of the Stratagos Podcast Network. To view the entire lineup of our shows, visit our website, stratagosgroup.com.